Well, good morning again. By the way, I forgot to mention, because I don't normally do the welcome, but if you're a guest with us, we would like to connect with you, and there'll be a number that pops up on the screen in just a second. And if you'll just either fill out the friendship card or just text this number with your smartphone, uh, we'd just like to con- just to get to know you a little bit better, keep the conversation going, maybe answer any questions you have, uh, pray with you. We don't hound you. We don't blast you. We don't... Uh, uh, give your information out to anybody else, but we'd just be glad to, to connect with you. So today we're starting a topic about Samson. And Samson's is really cool guy in the Bible. And we're going to study it for about four weeks. And it comes at a great time because it's right after our men's conference, which was tremendous. And it leads up to Relentless, where it's this big, huge kind of outreach fundraising event that will raise just over, well over $100,000 to help victims, uh, children, victims of cancer, or an, and help them with the medical costs and that kind of thing. So it's kind of really at a strategic time, and it's going to be great. And if you want to read ahead, I'd encourage you just to write these chapters down. Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16, there you're going to find the life of Samson. Now he's found in the book of Judges because Israel is in a transition state, the nation of Israel. They are going from a, a, a theophany, a, a God-led government, to they wanted a king. And so in the interim, there were judges appointed to rule and to reign. And, um, and Samson was one of those judges. Now, Judges 13 develops a foundational understanding of this strong man, Samson. And we're going to dive into the, some of the attitudes that made this strong man weak. And that's the key thing. He was a strong man physically, but man, he was a weak man morally. You talk about athleticism? Dude, you talk about, and I don't know how many of you watched football last night, but you talk about busting through the line? This guy, nobody would be able to stop this dude. I mean, he is a, I mean, just a freak of nature. Just incredibly strong and powerful. Yet he was morally weak. And so we want to kind of talk to you about some of those things. First of all, I want you to know a couple things about Samson. First of all, Samson's accomplishments are legendary. All right, they are legendary. Man, he he kills over a thousand people with the jawbone of the donkey. He kills three thousand at another time. And he ties foxes together, 300 foxes. And they ran through the field just burning up the the. Crop, crop. I sound like such a farmer, don't I? The crop, you know? The corn and whatever else they grew at that time. And, but yet also his weaknesses are also legendary because there's always one other name associated with Samson. And that is Delilah. Right. And so we see that his accomplishments, great. But his weaknesses are just as legendary. And so I want you to know this. If you want to, if you're taking notes here, the summary of his life can be summed up in one statement. And here's the statement. Samson was an incredibly strong whip, strong man with a dangerously weak will. Samson was an incredibly strong man with a dangerously weak will. Now, just like so many of us men, we're incredibly strong and we're We have strong and tremendous spiritual potential, but at the same time, most of us struggle with this stain of our will. 
Let me give you the big picture of the story of Samson, okay? Let's just kind of do a, a flyby of his life. And this is kind of like the Cliff Notes version. The Israelites had been unfaithful to God, so God put them under the rule of the Philistines, their arch enemy. And for years and years, God's, they were under the rule of the Philistines, and God finally said, you've learned your lesson, and I'm going to raise up a man, his name's Samson, and he will start to deliver you from the bondage of the Philistines. So you have the Israelites got under the rule and oppression of the Philistines, and God raising up Samson to deliver Israel from the Philistines, their arch enemy. So the angel of the Lord, Genesis, or Genesis, Judges chapter 13. So the angel of the Lord appeared to the couple that were unable to conceive. And he said, you're going to give birth to Samson. And from the very beginning of Samson's life, if you look at Judges chapter 13 verse 25. Matter of fact, just go to Judges chapter 13. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, the seventh book in the Bible. Josh, Judges. Turn to chapter 13, drop down to verse 25. Here's an incredible statement. Verse 25 says this it says that, and the Spirit of the Lord began to take hold of him. Isn't that an incredible statement? Here's this guy with tremendous athletic, physical abilities. I mean, he is buff. I mean, he is chiseled. He is Mr. Atlas holding up the world, dude. He is like, you know, Mr. Universe just got it going on. And then spiritually, the spirit of God begins to take hold of him. I don't know of a man anywhere that does not want the spirit of God to take hold of him. I don't know a man anywhere that does not want to feel that revigorating and revitalizing and reviving power of God's spirit present in their heart and in their life. And so then he comes and the angel said, I want you and your family to live by the Nazarite vow. Now, if you don't know what a Nazarite vow is, go to Numbers chapter 6. Just write it down in your notes. And in Numbers chapter 6, you find out that this vow was a voluntary vow. See, there were two ways that you would be involved in in service for God. One was a called way. God would call priests. God would call prophets. God would call those out of the certain tribes. But there was another way that you could volunteer. And so a Nazarite vow was a way of volunteering yourself to be consecrated, to be separated, to do the work of God. It wasn't the ordained priesthood per se, but it was simply saying, God, here I am. I take this Nazarite vow. And if you're going to take the Nazarite vow, then it was, you, you had to do three things. You had to not, no wine, no grape juice, no, no grapes. I mean, anything off the vine, no. So no wine. Don't touch anything dead. Dude, I'd make a real good Nazarite right there. I don't want anything dead. And don't cut your hair. And dude, I just wish I had hair to cut anymore, you know? And it's like, don't cut your hair. By the way, I heard preachers talk about all the time about, you know, back when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s and the Beatles and the long hair was it and all the preachers were going, see, Samson's hair got him in trouble. It wasn't his hair that got him in trouble. It was his weak will that got him in trouble. He was supposed to have the long hair. was supposed to never be cut. And so if you were going to be a Nazarite, 
you're going to take the Nazarite vow, these were the three things that you were committed to. Now, you say, okay, so what's the big deal about a Nazarite vow? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated an awesome Sunday of baptism, amen? I mean, that was just an incredible, incredible Sunday. Sixteen or so baptized on that one day was just a wonderful, wonderful. I've never seen anything like it. It was awesome. And so just like baptism is an outward expression of what has happened inwardly. It's an outward display of an inward commitment. This Nazarite vow, not drinking wine, not touching anything dead, not cutting your hair, would be an outward expression of that inward commitment that you have consecrated yourself to God. You have set yourself apart to God for God in his service and his service alone. Got it? It's kind of like the wedding ring. It's kind of like this ring means let you know that I'm a married man and that I wear the ring in honor of my commitment to my, my wife and I wear it in honor of her commitment and love and devotion to me. And it's an outward symbol of our inward love for each other. So this vow was simply an outward expression of an inward commitment and an inward time of consecration. Got it? So now some of you here want to, you know... Kind of, everybody kind of wants to focus in on the long hair. I'll just say this. I don't know what his hair was like. I know it was long enough to be braided. I can pretty much tell you that he did not. I'm pretty sure he did not have a mullet. And that's all we're going to say about that. God's hands on him. He takes the vow. So much so that when God's spirit came upon him, Samson could defeat a thousand of the Philistine men. God's strength would come upon him in such a way that he could literally rip a lion apart. And yet with all of, God's, with all of this God-given potential, his weak will got him into trouble again and again and again and again and again and over and over and over. This man who had incredible strength to control the wild tenacity and ferociousness of a lion did not have enough strength to control his own will it was his will that got him in trouble well if you read samson's story it's really just this kind of kind of tragic kind of story he he betrays god for a handful of money his temper gets the best of him and He unrighteously kills 30 innocent men for a bet that he lost. He again and again falls victim to pursuing the wrong kind of woman. And his lust for women again and again gets him in trouble. Guys, I want to tell you, he's just a lot like a lot of us. He had so much potential to do so much good. And yet again and again, he squandered that potential with just dumb choices, dumb living. And I don't know what it would be for you. But I see it all the time. I, I don't know how many men I've seen that are very, very aggressive at work. Man, they'll go get it. They'll knock it out. But they get home and they're so passive. They're so docile. They, they just kind of let things just kind of go their flow. They have so much potential. Yet at the same time, they self-destruct by making bad choices or by making non-choices and just kind of sitting back and letting life just happen. I know most of you don't know Doris Day, but she sang that wonderful song, Gay, Sarah, Sarah, finish it with me. Whatever will be, will be. That is so not biblical. It's a great song, but it's not a biblical song. 
And Samson many times would just step back and give in to his will. And this strong man became very weak. Well, Samson's life shows us three very specific attitudes that make strong men weak. And take notes on this. Three very specific attitudes that make strong men weak. Write these down. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you three of them. And then we'll talk about each of them by themselves. Lust, entitlement, and pride. Say those with me. Lust, entitlement, and pride. Say them one more time. Lust, entitlement, and pride. Well, what's the first thing that makes a, a strong man weak is lust. It's lust. Lust says, I want it. Lust says, I gotta have it. Lust says, I want it. Got it? When a man sees something that he desires, what does he say? Well, we lust after it. We say, I want it. I gotta have it. And I'm gonna get it because I want it. So what happens when lust happens is when the man slips into a pattern of lust, he forgets all about logic. He forgets all that he's invested his life in. He forgets all that God has asked him to do. And he forgets all the vows, Nazarite and all, the vows that he has made to God. I'm telling you, when your head and your heart go in conflict... When they go and battle with each other. This is why the teenage years are so rough. Because we know what's right in our head. But we know what we want in our heart. And most of the time we're so weak-willed. We give into our heart. Instead of doing what's right in our head. Does that make sense? Have you been there? Because lust says I want it. I want it. It may be he want you... You may be just like Samson, you want a woman, you know, you want, a, you want a quick fix, a sexual thrill. It could be that you want advancement in a career of money or to conquer something. It may be a boat or a new house, a new car, whatever it is, but when you want it, man, they, we just kind of lock in, get tunnel vision, and we forget about everything else. We forget about logic, we forget about right and wrong, and we pursue it with reckless abandonment. Look at Judges chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Look at what it says. In Judges 14, one day when Samson was in Timnah, he noticed a certain Philistine woman. And when he returned home, he told his father and mother, I want to marry a young Philistine woman I saw in Timnah. Now, by the way, who were the Philistines? The arch enemy. But let me give you a moral equivalent or an equivalent this day. This would be the equivalent of your son coming home and said, Mom, Dad, I found the girl of my dreams. What's she like? Well, she's in a few organizations and stuff. Well, what are those organizations? Well, well she's, in, she's involved in, in ISIS. But that's okay. She's, she's hot. She is a good-looking woman. And I, did you see it? Verse 2, and I want her. I've seen the Philistine woman. He says, now get her for me. Isn't that crazy? Here's a man separated 
consecrated, took the Nazarite vows, said, I'm going to be God's man, I'm going to be God's instrument, I'm going to be God's tool, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. He's got the Spirit of God on him to deliver him from the Philistines or to help deliver Israel from the Philistines. And so what does he do? He throws the commitment out the door. He throws God out the door. He throws logic out the door. And he goes and he sees this Philistine woman and says, oh, oh, baby, I got to have her mama. Daddy, go get her for me. Man. It's like, really? You don't want to marry a good Israelite girl? No, I want that woman. Guess she was smoking hot. I don't know. By the way, that's not in the Hebrew. That's kind of, I just threw that in there. He said, I saw her. I want her. I got to have her. So now what did he do? Well, if you keep reading in verses 3 and 4 and 5, he left Zorah, his hometown, and traveled four miles to Timnah, which is enemy territory. He left his friends and he went to his enemies and saw a woman that was forbidden to him because God said, you shall not intermarry with those who don't worship me. But he threw that to the wind. He just had to have her. His focus was not Godward now. It was on this Timnanite woman. His focus was not doing what God will, but it was doing his own will. And so at that moment... He looks at her and he forgets everything else. And he says, I want it. I don't care what my God says. I don't care what my dad says. I don't care what my mom says. I don't care what's right. I don't care what's wise. Because I'm a man. I've got my desires and I want it. You say, some of you women may be sitting back going, man, you know, my husband's, he needs a lot of help. But that doesn't sound like him. I'm telling you. Every male in this room, uh, every person in this room has the ability to walk from Zora to Timnah. Every person in this room has the ability to make that four-mile walk where you throw away everything that God has blessed you with to embrace nothing of eternal value. And so here's Samson, the strongest man morally weak but over and over and over again we see that lust makes strong men weak by the way this is his first wife and she uh makes this awful bet and anyway his first wife ends up being murdered and burned and he retaliates samson does his lust now turns to rage and bitterness and malice and he's inflamed and it's just, this isn't Delilah. Delilah is still to come. This is just the first of what would be a succession of a pattern of lust and lust and lust. Well, the second thing you see is his spirit of entitlement. Not only do we as men want it, but we believe we deserve it. Amen? Oh, come on now, guys. Don't hang me out to dry right here. You worked hard. Just, your wives will not listen for the next 90 seconds, okay? I promise. 
Just amen if I'm right here. You've worked hard, right? Maybe let's just pick a day. Let's just pick Thursday last week. You worked hard on Thursday. And you busted it. You worked. You were cranking it out. You were doing, you were putting up with supervisors above you and poor workers beneath you. I mean, you were just, you were just cranking it out. And all you wanted to do was just get home because it's Thursday night football. God has so blessed our country with not only Sunday football, but Monday night football. And now, yes, thank the Lord, Thursday night football. And all you were ready to do was to get home, sit on the couch, tank out. And watch Monday Night Football because you worked hard and you felt like you deserved it. You been there? The sense of entitlement. Man, it's everywhere. Well, I'm entitled to this. Listen, let me tell you what you and I are entitled to. Absolutely nothing. You say, well, wait a minute, I've worked hard for my house, I've worked hard for my car, I'm glad you've worked hard. But if it wasn't for the goodness of a God that loves you, you would have nothing. You say, well, you don't understand, man, I built my company, I'm glad you built your company. But if it wasn't God who gave you the ability to build what you have, you wouldn't have what you got. And so instead instead of being thankful for the gift from the giver, we think we're entitled to have what we want... And so now we put entitlement with lust. And that's a deadly combination. Entitlement says I deserve it. And that's a, that's a tough attitude. We believe we deserve it. You know, we work hard, we slave away, we put up. We deserve it. You say I deserve this. Watch where Samson's attitude, where he gets this attitude Look at verses 5 through 9. He's going along one day, and a lion jumps out. Now, lion is, Samson is such a bad dude, man. This lion, I'm telling you, a lion jumps out at me, I'm running. Now, he's going to outrun me in three steps, because this body don't run as fast as he do, used to, but I'm telling you, I, I am running. Lion jumps out at Samson, and he just goes, come here, little kitty, grabs that thing, yow! snaps his jaws, just unhinges his jaws and just crushes the skull and just flips it off to the side. One time in my life I would like to do that. Just one time. Hopefully I'll go back to Africa in January. I'll just be on the prowl. I'll see that lion. I'll say, Joe, go get him. You know, and that'll be... That would be cool. Look at verse 8. That's what he does, but look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, sometime later, we don't know how long later, but sometime later, when he went back to marry her, the woman at Timnah, he turned aside to look at the carcass, and he saw it with a swarm of bees and some honey. Now, I'll just be honest. If you ever need ladies' biblical proof that your husband... Is just nasty. Here it is. So you got the lead, the dead lion on the side of the road. Wild bees have started a beehive, and I know nothing about beehives, but they started beehiving in that that thing. And he, 
reaches inside. He saw a swarm of honey. And look at verse 9. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. And when he rejoined his parents, he gave them some and they ate too. And he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Why? Because he broke rule number two of the Nazarite vow. Remember, you don't touch anything that's dead. So, I mean, can you imagine? Samson's just walking along. He's a little hungry. You know, they didn't have Kilwin's sea salt caramel ice cream back in that day. And so he saw some sweet honey in this dead thing. He said, well, I killed that animal. I deserve to have a little honey. That seems so innocent, doesn't it? See, when you and I start saying, I deserve, we have to be so careful because we will let the phrase, I deserve, trump almost everything. Samson made a covenant with God that he would touch nothing unclean, but now because he thought he deserved it, he walked away from his promise, walked away from his Nazarite vow, and was walking further and further away from his God. By the way, not only did he do that, but he gave it to his mother and his father, who also had to take the Nazarite, or who also took the Nazarite vow. And so now he is aiding and abetting their sinfulness. And this morally weak man didn't even have the courage to tell him where he got the honey from. All because he felt entitled that he deserved, that it was all about him. And that's when we get in trouble. When we're going where we're not supposed to be going, we turn aside and we look into the lion's carcass. So, so he got, man, he just got in trouble. Lust says I want it. Entitlement says I deserve it. And when it comes to temptation, here's a third attitude that makes strong men weak, and that's pride. That's pride. What do we Think, men, we think, oh, I can handle it. That's pride. Pride says, I got it. I can handle it. I'm all over it. But what were those three vows? Don't cut your, don't drink, don't touch. All right, so that was it. So what does he do? Mr. Strong says, I can handle it. Look at verse 10. We're still in, in Judges chapter 14. Verse 10 says, And the father was making final arrangements for his marriage. And Samson threw a party at Timnah. Now where is Timnah? In enemy territory. Who lives in Timnah? The Philistines. Who is he throwing the party for? The Philistines. Who's the best men at his wedding? 30 of them. 30 of them. Philistines. He's God's man who in verse chapter 13, verse 25, said the Lord or the Spirit was stirring in him for the purpose of delivering the people of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And now instead of being their deliverer, he's their compromiser. He's in their town. He's... Being their friend, they're part of his wedding, standing up in there in his wedding. And then he throws this party, this huge party. 
Samson made a feast there as was customary for the bridegrooms. Verse 10 will tell us. And the Hebrew word translated as feast is the word mishtah. And it means a feast or a party. Very literally it means an occasion for drinking. This type of party is not like the Passover. It's not like the feast days in the Old Testament. This one has a very specific purpose. Drinking. Drinking. My, uh, we Americans, we're like most other people. We love to drink. Year, let's see, I think it was last year, Byron and I were at the Detroit Lions football game. We were in the end zone opposite the big scoreboard. And it was like everybody, I mean everybody around us just had a beer. And I looked at Byron and I said, buddy, I feel like I'm the only one, you and I are the only two in the entire world not drinking today. Samson just threw this big beer, wine, drunken party. What was the Nazarite vow? Don't drink. Don't drink of the wine. And so here's Samson. And he's saying, hey, it's all right. I can handle it. No problem. I go into Timnah, I can handle it. 30 groomsmen from the Philistines, no problem, I can handle it. Drinking with the boys, no problem, I can handle it. That's what pride says. I have never met an addict who does not have to wrestle at some level with this issue of pride. Because they will say to themselves, I can handle it. I got it. No problem. Don't worry about me. I'm not like those other guys. I can control this thing. I can handle it. And that's what happens to strong men over and over and over again. God has given us great potential to do wonderful works and bring glory to his name. And yet you think, I'm strong. I want it. I deserve it. I can handle it. I want it. I deserve it. I can handle it. And I don't know about you, but I can name any number of things, but all of us know a man with such great potential who thinks like this. I want a drink. I want a bottle. I want a pill. I want that woman. I want to smoke. I, I want those drugs or whatever it is. And we say, I deserve it. And I can handle it. Before long, the substance handles them. And we know again and again someone who says, I want a boat, I want a car, I want a toy, I deserve it, I can handle the payments. And before long, he's drowning in a sea of financial debt, feeling like he can't get out. We say, I want to look, I want her to stay, I deserve a little sexual pleasure, you know, I want, I can handle it. And then the next thing you know, his lust leads to a downward spiral. But yet he believes he's strong and he can handle it. If you fast forward to the end of Samson's life, let me just tell you what, what you're going to see on the last, the last sermon of this series. What you're going to see is perhaps the strongest man who ever lived but, and had God's hand upon him, strengthening him. And we're going to see this man between two pillars with his eyes literally gouged out, nothing but dark sockets. And we're going to see the strongest man who ever lived 
bound with his prized hair cut. And we're going to see the strongest man who ever lived in front of 3,000 of his enemies in a coliseum that worships the false god of Dagon. And we're going to see the strongest man who ever lived being mocked and ridiculed. We're going to see the strongest man who ever lived who represents the god of this universe to those Philistines mocking and laughing at the very god of this universe. And that's what lust and entitlement and pride can do. And a man who should have made all the difference in the world, man, it takes him down. You say, well, what are you telling me? Am I going to have my eyes gouged out? No, I'm not telling you that. It could be something much worse than that. It could be something much worse than that. You walk away from a marriage instead of staying out, staying and trying to work it out and, and, and make it work. Man, years from now, your kids may not even want you to come for Christmas. And I could think of a lot of things, man, but if my kids don't want me around, I'd rather have, my, I'd rather have no eyes and my kids want me than to have my eyes and my kids not want me. I can think of a whole lot of things more worse than not having my eyes. But here's a man who was physically strong, but he was morally weak. He had all the strength in his body, but he had no strength in his own will. Here's the deal, men. Here's the deal, ladies. It doesn't have, you don't have to be like Samson. It doesn't have to go down that way. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that he wants to have his hand on you. He wants to work in you. He wants you to take the Nazarite vow. Not, not to necessarily do those three things and have hair down to all that. I'm not talking about that, but he does want you to say, God, I want to serve you. God, I want to make a difference. God, I want to be a part of something bigger than myself so that, so that I can help somebody somewhere be better than what I am. So that I can help someone Somewhere, do something that's good and holy and honest and upright and you can make a difference in this world and you and I can be that man. You can be a man of courage. You can be a man of integrity. You can be a man of spiritual strength. You can be a man who defends those who are defenseless. You can be a godly man and a godly husband and you can be a godly dad and no matter what happens in the past, you can be what God wants you to be if you'll stop trying to be strong in your own strength because here's the deal. Our spiritual enemy, Satan, loves to make strong men weak. But our God in heaven delights, he thrills, he rejoices in making weak men strong. And our God is with you. And our God is for you. And he wants to take you in your weakness. Matter of fact, he says in the book of 1 Corinthians, In your weakness, I receive my greatest glory. Not your strength, but your weakness. So let me give you one attitude in closing that will make weak men strong. Here's one attitude, and there's many, and we'll talk about these as we go through the, the, the life of Samson here. But there's one attitude I just want to throw out there that will make weak men strong. And that's the attitude that says, I want God. I want God. I need God. Have you ever wanted something so bad you just were looking everywhere? I got home late Friday night and I was, I was very hungry. And so I knew my wife had popcorn in the house. I did not know where she had popcorn in the house. And because she feels the call of God on her life to help me lose weight, she hid the popcorn. 
So, I mean, I am like, I am going through stuff at our house. Man, I am looking. And now I'm starting to go, I'm going to think like my wife. And that is a scary thing to do. But I'm starting to go, think about where would my wife hide it? And bingo, the first place that I thought of where would my wife hide it, there it was. And I popped my mind. My thing is, man, I wish we'd had that same tenacity to want God like we want the popcorn. I wish we had the same tenacity to follow after the things of God instead of walking four miles the wrong way from Zorah to Timnah, that we would walk four miles the right way into God's grace, into God's presence, deliberately into his strength, deliberately into his power, deliberately into his mercy, so that God can do a mighty work in us and through us and through that be a blessing to other people. I want God. God in his goodness While we were yet sinners, sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross, even though we deserved death. And when every other strong man says, hey, I can handle it, I can handle my sin, I don't need a savior. What do weak men say? Weak men say, I can't handle anything without God. I can't love my wife without God. I can't raise my children without God. I can't live life without God. I want God because I need God. That's hard for us men. Especially since we live in a Western culture that values entrepreneurship and and just kind of pick yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, kick it in gear and just get up and keep on going to say, I can't make it without God is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of leaning into the strength of our Heavenly Father. This past week I was with my my grandbabies and uh, when Emma Kate would get tired I'd pick her up. Matter of fact, I was hoping she'd get tired. Just so I could pick her up. We ran. I don't want to run anymore. We ran. Thank goodness her legs are only that long, so I beat her, but that's all right. Just to make her tired so I could hold her. And never, not one time did I think, that's a weak child. Never one time when I picked her up did I think, oh, that's a sign of weakness. Never one time when she reached her little arms up to me did I go, oh, that's a sign of weakness. What a horrible, pathetic little thing. I said, oh, yeah, baby, let me just kiss you, tickle you, hug you, and make all those funny noise that grown college-degreed people should never make, but we make them. Got the idea? I want God. So here's the deal. You think you're strong. Let me tell you, Satan loves to take you out. He will take you out because Satan loves to make strong men weak, but God loves to make weak men strong. God could stir you. God could strengthen you. And it doesn't matter what's happened in your past. From this moment forward, man, the world has yet to see a movement of God where men rise up, 
because the presence of God and the Spirit of God begins to stir in their heart. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes for just a minute? You know, I'm